Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hello, gorgeous, gorgeous ghouls, and welcome to another episode of Ghoul Friends. We're back after a little impromptu break. I hope you've missed us. We miss you. Um, and as always, I'm joined by my best girl, Lucy. How are you doing? Good. Did you miss me? Yes. It's been <laughs> weird the last couple of weeks not doing this. But we're back, and we've got lots to be excited about coming out over the summer. So... Yeah ready just to plod on and uh yeah watch some fun horror movies over the summer um and today we're joined by a very special guest uh janine how are you doing janine uh, well i feel better after being called a very special guest so thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> i'm good thank you and today we, Lucy and I decided to get very patriotic and we're talking about horror films based in Scotland and we're going to be talking about Dog Soldiers and The Wicker Man, the 1973 version. Um, but before we get into that, um, there's a very good reason we went with this topic and it's because our guest Janine is a massive fan of dog soldiers and has actually written a book about it so Janine do you want to tell us a bit more about sausages the book that you wrote and um a wee bit more about your corner of the internet thank you um so part of me is still actually pinching myself that I, I got to do this amazing project because Dog Soldiers has been my favourite movie for years and years. I saw it back when it came out in 2002. I avidly followed Neil Marshall's career and being able to do this has been, you know, it sounds so cliche, but it has been a dream come true. Um, and once Neil got to kind of chat with me and realised that I was a, a super fan, he was really pleased that he'd waited that amount of time for someone like me to write a book about it as well. Um, and the way that I went about it was that I wanted it to be uh, a very much come from um, the background of being a horror fan. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a film critic or anything like that. I, I just love horror. And so the way I pitched writing this was I wanted it to be a celebration because it was um, the 20 year anniversary. But that was all I wanted it to be. I wasn't trying to dig for any dirt. I didn't want any, you know, stories um, from the set where terrible things happened or anything like that. I wasn't looking for anything like that. I just wanted fun stories. I wanted interesting things. 
And I think that once the actors and people involved knew that I wasn't trying to catch them out and I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't the paparazzi trying to, you know, sort of show them up as, you know, terrible people, which they're not. They were so much happier just to be able to chat and tell their stories. And they all really enjoyed like reminiscing as well, because some of them hadn't seen or spoken to each other for years. So they were actually asking me, oh, how so and so doing? You know, oh, we had such a great time and whatnot. And it was just the best experience. You know, people say never meet your heroes and never peek behind the curtain because, you know, you might be disillusioned by what you find out. But I can say that every person that I spoke to with this was just absolutely wonderful and generous with their time and genuinely enjoyed reminiscing and talking about the thing that they enjoyed making as much as we all enjoy watching. So that was just, it was a breath of fresh air to be able to talk to all these celebrities and kind of like realize that they were just normal people. You know, they, they might be superstars who I watch on my TV and they might be millionaires, but they're all just lovely down to earth people. So it was just an absolute dream come true. Um, I do write fiction as well. I've got um, my own um, short story collection out, um, various short stories in different anthologies. Um, I sometimes write features for magazines like Fangoria and places like that as well. And I'm also um, a co-editor with a couple of presses, so curating and editing anthologies and that kind of thing. Um, also a script writer, screenwriter, um, and I actually write scripts for a weekly podcast called Something Scary, which has over two million subscribers. So, yeah, <laughs> pretty busy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely busy. Like, sounds like you're living the dream. <laughs> I can see Lucy's face there being like, I want to do that. So let's get into the first of our films, which is Dog Soldiers. And Lucy, can you take us through that, please? Yes, excited to get into this. Explosive, brutal, and purely enjoyable horror debuts since the Evil Dead. Genuinely frightening. Jaws, Aliens, and Predator with a werewolf twist. Come Absolutely brilliant. Thrilling. Mind your toes! Exciting. Scary. I don't scare that easy. And funny. I'm sold. A horror film with bite. You are. Sold! I'm in the closet! A bitch of a werewolf movie. Wait it! Dog Soldiers. It'll blow your house down. So Dog Soldiers, as we've already mentioned, was released in 2002, and the IMBD plot is as follows. A routine military exercise turns into a nightmare in the Scottish wilderness. Uh, this was directed by Neil Marshall, whose other work includes The Descent and Hellboy, two amazing films. Um, and the cast includes a variety of people, such as Kevin McKidd, Emma, Emma Cleesby, and Sean Pertwee. Now, I know, obviously, Janine, you are a massive fan of Dog Soldiers, our resident expert, but Lindsay, do you remember when the first time you watched Dog Soldiers? Was it for the podcast or had you seen it before? 
I vaguely remember watching it when it first came out. I'm sure like one of my uncles would have bought it on video or DVD. <laughs> Hopefully DVD <laughs> at this point. Um, and it kind of been on in the background. I probably would have only been like 10 or 11 when this came out. So I don't think it fully like registered um, what was going on. It was just very much like background noise to whatever I was doing as a child. So the first time I watched it properly was for this podcast, but I had seen it before. It's interesting you say that because the first time I watched this was only last year. And I'm kicking myself because I feel like, you know, being Scottish, we're both Scottish um you don't see enough of Scotland in horror and I'd love to see more horror like based in the Highlands as well and um there was a bit of nostalgia to this as well because I mean my family grew up I have a lot of family in Fort William I know this isn't in Fort William but the mention is I know I was gonna say it's filmed in Luxembourg (laughs) (laughs) oops (laughs) but um no I I really I really really liked it um the, yeah it, it was it was I mean it's just a stellar cast and I don't think I've seen anything quite like it before and we talk a lot about the use of like practical effects and things like that I feel like this is a real showcase of that and Jeannie I'm sure you're gonna have plenty of trivia for us so if there's any point you want to be like oh fact or something interesting please do let us know but let's go through the plot of the film so we start off with a couple that are going camping in the Scottish Highlands. I was actually supposed to be camping this weekend and I fo- unfortunately couldn't because of the weather. So I'm kind of glad oh. now because like <laughs> this gave me the fear a little bit. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, so the woman in our couple gives the man a silver letter opener as a present and shortly afterwards they're killed in their tent. Before this things are getting a little bit hot and steamy. It's the classic kind of unzip the trousers but then you hear the unzip of the tent and we're into our first kill straight away. Um, so we don't know at this point, you know, what, what the creature is, but you start off with a bang. Um, personally, I really like that in a horror film when we start off with the gore. Um, Janine, do you remember the, well, I know you said you saw this when it came out. Did you see it in like the cinema and did you get to see that on the big screen and be like, oh my gosh, you know, we're in for a wild ride? Unfortunately, I would love to say that I saw it in a cinema because I did see it when it was brand new, but uh, he was on holiday in Corfu at a bar when the barman brought out a big white sheet and stuck it on the wall and then put a projector on and proceeded to show an illegal, obviously pirate copy of it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first viewing of it. Um, And of course it was your typical kind of like, because obviously someone had filmed it, sat in the cinema. So not only was it a really shaky, terrible um, sort of copy of it, but there was like the people standing up and going to the loo and all of that. Um, So unfortunately I didn't see it in the cinema and haven't yet. And as soon as, you know, I'm hoping that because of it being with the the new 4K release uh, through Second Sight, which is coming out in August, I'm hoping that someone's gonna do a screener at some point and put it up on a big screen so I can finally say I've seen it up on a, you know, how it was supposed to be seen because I totally agree that first kill it lets you know exactly what's going to happen in this film. There's no kind of like creeping around this, like, right, okay, wham, bam, this is what we're going to have. And it's a, it's a brilliant start to the movie. That's a great story, though, for the first time you've watched it. And <laughs> it, like, it reminds me because, like, my, my family worked in oil and gas and, like, a lot of times they would come back from offshore with, like, 
pirated copies of films and I still remember that watching stuff like and it's the person sitting in the cinema and yes. the noise. that just brings me back to my childhood <laughs> Lindsay what do you think of this first scene I love it like like you're supposed to say in with a bang like they're not shy about the violence whatsoever just straight in there it lets you know like what kind of movie it's going to be and I also love the kind of you already know going into this it's a a werewolf movie and if you know your werewolf lore you'll know that silver kills werewolf so this silver um, letter opener and I was like right this is like a good little bit of like foreshadowing it's like I'll remember that and see where it comes into play later on um so I like that little nod for all the people who are big fans of werewolf lore films yeah the rest of it no, for sure. And we get more of that later on about the lore of werewolves and, you know, what's actually real in this. Because, I, I mean, werewolves are kind of like vampires, you know, in each film or franchise or that. They're slightly dif- different iterations. There's some common things that connect them, but each one's a little bit unique. Um, I feel so- like werewolves as well. Like, everyone's a bit like vampires or zombies and werewolves get le- left out the conversation a little bit. And I think this would be like a good film to put on and be like, this is why you should pay attention to werewolves because I think this is a really good showcase of how they can be done well in a horror film. That's actually so true. Ginny, do you have any thoughts on that? It is, yeah. And I think a lot of it um, sort of historically is to do with cost because with a vampire film, you know, a pair of plastic Halloween teeth and some blood and you're a vampire. Um, with the zombies, some torn clothes, some porridge on your face and makeup, you're a zombie. But werewolves, bloody difficult to get that practical effects. Um, and it's just historically that you, when you've got sort of your prototypes, like um, things like American Werewolf in London and the howling afterwards, like filmmakers were really reticent to try and copy that because they already felt the best had been done. How were they ever going to top something like that? And then you get into the late 90s, early 2000s, when you start having the CGI werewolves coming in with things like Van Helsing and Underworld and all those kind of things. And they're just god awful. But then I don't like CGI anyway. (laughs) Um, But hopefully there seems to be a bit of a resurgence of werewolf films coming through at the moment. There's been um, two or three recently and there's two or three in the works that I keep, uh, you know, keeping my eye on. So, and they're all, they've all gone down the practical effect as well, because um, if you can do in camera effects, then it is always so much better. But that has always been the reason why people didn't do werewolves as much. And it was just down to money because it's very expensive to make a realistic looking werewolf. That's actually a very fair point. I didn't think about that before, but full costume for a werewolf, that, that is a lot more expensive than like say a vampire or a zombie. And I feel like, I was going to say, especially vampires, but to be, not, to be honest, zombies as well, because thinking about how many zombie films we've spoken about over the past couple of months, they've, had, they've both had a real renaissance over yeah. the past like 10, 20 years. So it's time for the werewolves to, to come back. Yeah. They need to come back. <laughs> um, so after this, we cut to Northern Wales and we are introduced uh, to Cooper. He's running through a forest. He's attacked by his pursuers and overwhelmed and wrestled to the ground. At this point, we realise that he's like training to be part of the special forces. Um, and this is where we find Captain Richard Ryan as well. Um, 
he's not great at his training to say the least and the captain says to him you know you have to you have to like basically have a backbone and you can't have a moral compass you have to kill this dog and rightfully so he says absolutely fucking not I don't care if you had no I, I could never do that like I know you know moral high ground and stuff but um the captain decides to shoot the dog anyway and it's just like you're you know you're not made you're not made for this you're not made for the special forces um so it's a real quite powerful introduction because like the, when the captain did that as well like nonchalantly I'm like oh you're a bit of an evil bastard aren't you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lindsay where you because like we're we're really big animal lovers and one thing we hate in horror is seeing animals die Lindsay where you devastated yeah but like at the same time it's a really good scene as well because it tells you who Ryan is and who Cooper is straight away and in a very short period of time like just before this we've had we've seen what the werewolf can do in a very succinct amount of time we know these two characters in this scene inside and out already so I think it was like really good to put it in but no I'm like Tim Cooper like don't kill the dog (laughs) there's absolutely no need and he's so right as well because he's like he's part of the team like uh, like animal, service animals animals as part of the army animals as part of the police fire service mountain service they're part of the team like you can't just kill your teammates no, it's just a waste it's a wasted life for this for the sake of it really um after this we're it's four weeks later and we're introduced to our squad of six soldiers including cooper there's like spoon there's joe who i'm trying to think of everyone else off the top of my head um terry who else is there? Yeah. And the sergeant. Yeah, and the sergeant. Yes, oh, sergeant. Is there anybody, like, do you two have any favourites out of the squad? Because I actually think what this film does really well is when we have an ensemble cast, sometimes people can be quite forgettable. But I feel like in Dog Soldiers, you actually get to know everyone and it makes what comes later all the more emotional. Janine, do you have a favourite? For years and years and years, it was always um, Sergeant Wells, always, always, always Sean. Um, And that still is the case, um, along with Kev uh, Cooper. But getting to know some of the guys has made it way more difficult now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, because I I talked to um, Darren Morfolk quite a lot, who played Spoon. I talked to Les Simpson quite a lot, who played um, Les. And just like talking to them and getting to know them, uh, it's, it's... it's made it so much more difficult, you know, actually watching it. And their deaths now devastate me every time I watch it. <laughs> Even though I know I've just spoken to them on Facebook or something, I'll be like, oh my goodness. But there's, and I think even more now from getting to know Kevin McKidd, who is just wonderful, I think possibly Cooper is my absolute favourite. Yeah. <laughs> very valid choice I get, that must be so difficult though because you get to know these people and then you see them on the screen like I don't want to see you get hurt exactly <laughs> is there anything like as you got to know the cast is there anything that surprised you when you got to know them like it, it, just any like trivia that they shared or just anything you were like oh I'd, you know anything at all 
Not, not surprising particularly, only um, insofar that um, Darren, who played Spoon, doesn't act anymore. He's completely out of the business, um, oh. which is a, a real shame because I think that he's a brilliant actor. Um, he was amazing in Doomsday as well, which is another one of Neil's films. Um, so I was kind of a bit sad that he'd stepped away from that because he's just so good at what he does. Um, but otherwise, I guess the only thing that was surprising, but in a really good way, was again, as I've already said, just how nice they were. And it was really like kind of like speaking to an old school friend or like being down the pub with your mates. They made me, and I know they're all media trained anyway, so they're used to interviews and that kind of thing. But they made me feel so at ease because, like, to start with, I was like, it's Sean, can't we? <laughs> I've got to talk to him. And he was on my TV and I was like proper fangirling. And immediately they were like, you know, asking me questions about myself and stuff and just putting me at ease. And the conversations just flowed then. So they were just all so nice. They really were. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm gutted because Spoons was one of my favorites I have to say um but no it just goes to show you know I mean you get you get good and bad everywhere but you know in the horror community especially I feel like people are really good to their fans like yeah. actors directors writers you know there's lots of conventions for a reason I feel yeah. like there's a an engagement there that you don't really get with other genres um I would agree with you I think the sergeant is my favorite just because he goes through such a good redemption story and just like beautifully acted like yeah. really really well done uh what about you Lindsay do you have a favorite yeah like I love Cooper um I also love the person I can't remember the character's name who just get, keeps going on about the football match because I feel <laughs> like that would be me <laughs> <laughs> Joe's brilliant <laughs> it's just like that's all he cares about he just wants to get this out of the way and he just wants to know who wins the game England versus Germany and I'm just like you know what me too like <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind having a pint with him at the local watching yeah. the footy <laughs> who is it that says um come out if you think you're hard enough and I was like oh that's my kind of lad that is going to primary school or high school even in the UK like if any international people listen to this like if you saw another school's bus that's what you'd do you'd be like come I on actually you would. You're hard enough like <laughs> the people in my schools did it anyway <laughs> that's what you hear on George Street on like a Friday night yeah <laughs> <laughs> it just felt very relatable and then um you know one of the end scenes um somebody says I hope I hope I give you the shits or something and I'm like yeah, yeah that is a very spoon again yeah, yeah spoons. <laughs> that's so fucking accurate about being Scottish yeah. it made me feel quite proud <laughs> but anyway we're jump jumping ahead a wee bit um but yeah, as we mentioned, we have our squad of soldiers, including Cooper. They're dropped into a remote area of the Scottish Highlands, thinking that they're doing a training exercise against a special air service unit. Um, the following morning, they find um, SAS units savage remains, and there's like bits of them everywhere. There's it's like I didn't expect how gory this film was. I know I watched it last year, but like I, I actually forgot. There's there's a scene we'll get to later with with the dog. And I don't think I'm ever going to eat sausages the same way again. But this bit is still still quite gory. Um, 
we find a really badly wounded Captain Ryan. He's the only survivor. He's got like scratch marks over him. Um, and he's making really cryptic references as to like what attacked them. He's not outrightly saying there's a werewolf. He just says that his whole team's gone. They have to get away. Um, and the troops retreat when there's like assailants going about. So like the werewolves, you can hear the growling of that, but you don't actually see them. Um, what do we think of this scene? Because we're getting, I mean, we had the gore before, but this is like it's picking up a bit, isn't it? Lindsay, do you th- what do you think of this bit? Um, like just at this, like obviously we meet Liam Cunningham's character, like Captain Ryan beforehand, but it was like at this part, I was just like, I love him so much. Like he's such a good actor. And I think he's like weirdly underrated as well. Like he's, he's in loads of different stuff. And I think watching this, I didn't realize like how much he can like change his accents and stuff. Like obviously he was in Game of Thrones, which Neil Marshall also directed a few episodes of that as well. Um, and I was just like he's such a good actor like I've seen him in loads of stuff all my life but when I was watching this scene I just like couldn't help but think that Um, and he plays this like villainous role so well like you really hate him oh he's pure evil it's just like I feel bad because I love him as an actor when I see him yeah. in this I'm like I hate your face <laughs> I know like I don't know how I could go from like wanting to have a Seaworth to be my dad to like or just wanting to actually murder Captain Ryan myself do you know what I mean <laughs> this, this is probably going to be really niche there might be people out there that are like really into theatre but and actually Janine you might like this there's um, a play called The Black Watch I've seen it before it's like a really small play by the National Theatre of Scotland and it's it's about a group of soldiers and dog soldiers just reminds me of that and they haven't ran it in like 10 years and I'm like oh see if you brought some of the cast here to be in the Black Watch it'd be amazing so I'll send you that after this you I think you might quite like it it's oh, it's a, yeah, if you so. like if you like theatre it's not like a really long play but it's yeah. really good cool um so after this whilst retreating Bruce is impaled by a tree branch. Now, I did not see this coming at all. Um, Janine, <laughs> what do you think of this? Because it's so like, I really shit myself when I saw this. Oh my God, yeah. I got a real jump scare from it. Yeah, I love it. I love because it, it immediately tells you that you cannot get attached to any of these characters because, you know, all bets are off. We're just not going to know who is up you know who's going to be next it just because there's a an actor that you recognize and it don't think that they're going to make it through or anything like that um it, it looks good as well because originally he was meant to um be running and fall off a cliff and we were meant to see oh, obviously okay. the body um falling down but again it was too expensive so they went with the the impalement instead but but i actually think it works well and it looks good um i liked it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think like you don't you don't expect it and I think no. what makes it creepier is it's that's something that actually could happen like I'm yes. very clumsy if I was <laughs> running away from something that 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 would ha- I would not be surprised if that was the way I was going to go um Sergeant Wells is also attacked he's rescued by Cooper and Crary to like a rural area where the group meets Megan this scene's also so savage where we get the guts everywhere and just Lindsay, what did, what did you think of this? Because like, and especially because it's low budget as well. I think the gore in this is still actually done really well. Feels quite grimy, but like in a good way. 
yeah like the the special effects of like the injuries and stuff are really unclockable to be honest and this film was super low budget as well not super low budget it's like 2.3 or 5 million but it's quite low budget uh, and I think they're unclockable and like when the guy runs and impales himself like oh you proper feel it and then later on when the dog is like chewing on Will's intestines oh. like it's really funny but it's also really gross that's also another thing about this film it is like low-key hilarious too which you you don't really ex- you're not really expecting straight from the off but it is actually so funny and when they play up the ridiculousness of that kind of thing like there's no way Wells is surviving like basically being disemboweled by a werewolf but the fact he's just there like throughout the whole film the dog is just having a wee gnaw on his intestines it's just so absurd and so funny the bit that really makes me giggle is when they're trying to sew him back up together and he's like hit me like like knock me out I just find that bloody hilarious yep Is there like a favorite funny moment that you have, Janine, of something like you are supposed to laugh, aren't you? Like it's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were yeah, definitely there was always supposed to be humor in it. Neil wrote it with humor, and then the actors brought some humor to it as well. Especially Sean, quite a few of his lines. Um, one of my favorites is the <laughs> when he's in the toilet and he's uh, like saying, "I'm in the carzy." I love that so much. It makes me laugh every time. And that was ad lib. That was just Sean, you know, messing around and being silly and being in the moment. Um, and I do, and I love what you just said, the uh, the punch scene. And the funny thing um, about that is that Sean was actually drunk. Um, oh, really? I did too. I mean, obviously he's a, a you know, a, a brilliant actor. Um, and he said to Neil, look, I can play drunk or I can have, some drink and I can really be drunk in this scene um and it's kind of frowned upon on set you're not supposed to drink obviously for various reasons but because um that people were told about it and people agreed to it (laughs) they let it happen um but he was really winding Kev McKidd up because he was like just kept like getting his lines wrong and stuff like that and and so by that time when he was like giggling and being like oh can you hit me Kev punched him and that crap that you hear the second time is because Kev actually punched Sean on the nose and Fucking it almost ass. broke it. <laughs> he just had enough at that point. It's like, yeah, whack. Yeah, that's it. But Sean was so drunk, he didn't know. And he was just giggling. He was just like, when obviously when Neil went, God, quickly kind of thing. It, Sean was just laying on the bed going, oh, like giggling away. And there's blood everywhere. <laughs> I, I can that's the funniest thing I've heard of a behind the scenes so far I have to say that is really <laughs> what a legend um, yeah. at this point yeah we meet um Megan our our zoologist um who's, who's like the only female in the film I think actually um what do we feel about about Megan because obviously we have this like twist at the end um yeah, but like Janine, what would you feel about Megan's role in Dog Soldiers in a it's film really that is predominantly yeah. because because I know what she does to them, you know, I absolutely hate her <laughs> and I can't get past her. <laughs> but I also find her a very interesting and complicated character. 
and uh, I think her actions and um, her reasons for doing things, her motives are very fluid throughout the film as well. Um, I think that she is ultimately trapped um, and is, is using them, whether she was intending to use them as a getaway to start with, and then that all went wrong really quickly, I don't know. So I, I, I think that the actor Emma Cleesby is bloody fantastic, and um, the stories that we heard, um, I, I wasn't able to speak to Emma. Um, she, again, is no longer acting or in the business in the slightest, and although she wished us good luck with the project, she didn't want to be interviewed about it, and, you know, that's absolutely fair enough. Um, but all the stories that I heard from the guys said that, you know, considering she was one of the only women on the set, you know, most of the time as well, she held her own and she was, you know, she wasn't afraid to do anything. She gave her all. And um, at, at the end, when she's kind of just about to change, um, she looks kind of like really sweaty and like red in the face and all of that kind of stuff, which works for the character. But the poor woman was also absolutely, she had the flu, basically. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> she was um kind of like acting through being really, really poorly. So like the red nose and everything is because she was like full of like that's <laughs> not basically. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> she did even, you know, even better to be able to get through all of those like hard scenes and everything whilst feeling unwell. But yeah, because they, they spent hours and hours and hours at the hotel bar every night. And, you know, because they, they were bonding, basically. Actors yeah. do that anyway. But this was important for this for, for this film because of the roles they were playing. And she was there with them the whole time and just having fun. And she was one of the family, too. So full kudos to Emma. Um, but yeah, I don't like her character. Only because of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's very that's very true. Also, like that that's method acting, yeah. li li literally. So I have to, I have to give her a juice there. I think yeah. Megan's such an interesting character because, as you said at the end, you're just like, oh, you bastard. But yeah. what I quite like is, you know, like from the from the offset anyway. Um, she comes across as very quite strong headed. She's knowledgeable, and what I quite like is. I don't know when I see like military men in horror films and I see women and my head immediately goes to 28 days later and I'm always kind of that panicked of oh is this going to be a hostile situation for her because as women it's just yes. yeah. life what happens and even though there is that kind of flirting and there's a little bit of things here and there not it's not like that in this she's not sexualized by the soldiers which no. I really appreciate because on first viewing at least that's where my mind went Lindsay I'm not sure if you thought the same, we're pretty presently surprised. Yeah, like like you say, I think your mind does go to 28 Days Later and how like terrifying it is really. It's like, it's not even the infected that is terrifying. It's the soldiers later on, they think they found yeah. a safe haven and they turn out to be absolute creeps. But um, no, like nobody talks to her or even looks at her like that, which is really refreshing actually. Um, I did like her character at the start. Um, you know, it's totally believable, like zoologist in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, you know, there's lots to see, like wildlife-wise there. And um, there's also lots of folklore about creatures that could be there. So if she was looking for something a bit out of the ordinary, then you could you could maybe believe it. And yeah. I think that's what makes it so like shocking at the end because it's like you have believed everything she's said this entire movie, and then you know she like she's doing what she's doing and you just can't believe it. 
I was shook to my core even rewatching it I knew what was gonna happen and I'm still like oh snake but anyway <laughs> um so they as I said they they meet Megan who takes them to a lonely house by an unknown family she says you know the the nearest town is like over like or like the nearest telephone's like 50 miles away they're in the middle of nowhere there's this farm she knows the neighbors they're not in come you know come here this is the only option you've got basically so the soldiers who we have left are Wells, Cooper, Spoon, Joe and Terry darkness falls they go into the house they make themselves right at bloody home there's a pot of dinner cooking and they're like all right get the bowls out get some scran in yeah I can't really blame them but they're, yes. they're making themselves comfy to say the least um <laughs> after this um it's revealed it's it's werewolves I mean at this point some of them are in denial but you know at this point you you can't um and they start trying to barricade the house they try to get into the Land Rover but find it's been destroyed by the werewolves because they were going to try and get the sergeant out to get some medical help um so they make a desperate defense until they can make it to sunrise and the werewolves revert to their human form um, and this is when we really get to see kind of the werewolf shine. We pro properly see like long shots of them and we can see the effects. And um, I just love the practical effects of this. And like the, the werewolves do feel quite real. It reminds me a little bit of like Ginger Snaps in a way, but more faster werewolves, more kind of terrifying. Um, Janine, do you have any facts about like the costuming that went behind it or the effects of the actual werewolves because I mean even like the fur and stuff like that it just it's pretty realistic of what I'd imagine a werewolf to be. <laughs> Definitely um so they were kind of um they knew that they wanted the heads to be very wolf-like so obviously it's a werewolf but there's lots of different interpretation of that but they wanted them to be specifically dog-like wolf-like and I think that really works. Um, the other thing was that Neil didn't want um, just like stunt actors or anything like that in them because he didn't want them to be big and bulky. He actually, the, the guys that played the werewolves were dancers, um, trained in ballet and all that kind of stuff because he wanted them to be graceful. And I think that you can really tell that. They ended up being about seven feet tall because they had um, really big stilts on. Um, but also what they did is they made uh, the guy that made the set, Simon, uh, the ceilings were slightly lower than they should have been so that they just uh, the ceiling just touched the top of the werewolf's ears. So, again, it made them look more imposing. And there's a there's one shot in particular of when Sean's lying on the bed and the werewolf is just kind of looming over him as he like clams through the window. And yeah. it's scary. It really is an amazing shot. When because if that came in, you'd be like, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> I'm done for. Yeah. It's really inter interesting you've mentioned there that the the people in the costumes were dancers because that's quite common in horror. We found yes. recently in some of the trivia, and you can see why because of those fluid motions and movements. Like you're not going to get that exactly. With, you know, an average person. You put me in that suit. I'm not going to go about like a werewolf <laughs> yeah. um, that's right and you look 
at someone like um, Kane Hodder, for example, you know, like who's like, you know, a brilliant, but he's like all muscle, isn't he? You put someone like that in the suit, you know, he's a renowned stunt actor, but it would be a completely different aesthetic and it wasn't what Neil wanted. He wanted that fluidity of movement. He wanted that gracefulness and it's just, it works. Definitely. There's also, um, I don't know why it's just reminded me, references galore, but there's a video game that came out last month called The Quarry. Yes. Um, yeah, it, actually, I can see a bit of like an influence of dog soldiers on that because the werewolves and that are kind of yep. human-like, but very tough. And that game was, if you played it. I haven't. I know about it. I haven't played it. It's very scary. I <laughs> did not, everyone, no, I, I nearly had everyone survive and then it came to the last chapter and it didn't, didn't happen. But the werewolves in it are, are very kind of similar to dog soldiers and that, and it makes it all the more terrifying. There's these like seven, eight foot tall, thin, lanky creatures. And yeah, you can definitely see an influence there. So after this, um, we get the scene that we talked about where Cooper and Megan are treating Wells's wounds. Can't say I've ever, seeing somebody put guts back together, maybe with some super glue. I don't even know how the hell they do it. And then you have the punch, which I mean, I think it's my favorite scene. It's just so bloody good. Um, so they tend to his wounds and shortly afterwards realize that they're not gonna last and they try to escape. Spoon creates a diversion and that's where we get the iconic scene and the iconic line like, come here if you think you're fucking hard enough. Like, just love that. Um, and Joe steals a Land Rover from the garage. Joe drives up to the house door, but is killed by a werewolf that was hiding in the back seat. And I was gutted for him at this point because, like, there's quite a few deaths after this, and I'm just like, as you said, no one's safe, are they? No, no. <laughs> that was quite a gory scene with Joe as well. You know, the, oh, yeah. that they really went for it with that one. You know, when when they open the door and the blood just washes out, like almost like The Shining. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and you just see his just head just lolls out and it's like oh my god but just before that when um when joe's in the garage and um you see the the wolf that's got terry as well and yeah. he just kind of looks at him and he's just like because at that point terry's still alive as well and that's one of the bits that gets me most in the movie and terry just pathetically puts like one arm out and then you know that even if he survived, he wouldn't be any good because he'd be a werewolf. But the werewolf's just like, now nah, we're going to have some fun. So just rips his head off and throws it at the Land Rover. <laughs> Amazing. Throws it like a basketball. It's just yeah. like, like 10 points. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't, again, like the gore in this just always, always surprises me. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, before that yeah we have the the bit with the dog that's literally tugging on the sergeant's guts and I don't know Lindsay if you thought because Lindsay has a dog bear and when I was watching this I was thinking I wonder if she's imagining if bear would do that to you yeah absolutely would if he thought he could get a dinner he absolutely would I've got a interesting fact for you about that then uh, because you've both said it as well uh that isn't his innards that the dog is tugging on it's just a bloody bandage. Oh, I thought yeah. it was. If, if, I yeah. was so if convinced you, it was his yeah. intestines. If you, if you go back and watch it, you can see that it is just, it's the bandage that um, Spoon has quickly wrapped around him. It's just the field bandage and the dog is pulling on it. 
but you're not the only people. Um, Neil said when they did the testing, so many people were convinced that it was the actual, you know, his guts that they were tugging on, that they just left that scene in like that because they didn't need to do anything else. Everybody's imagination thinks it's Sean's guts that the dog is tugging on, but it isn't, it's just a bandage. But it's funny that you both mentioned that as well, because yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. It just shows how like disgusting we all are. <laughs> That's yeah. the first thing you think of, but it does really look like that. So yeah, un unintentional gore. Oh, yep. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that again and like really have an eagle eye on it. Um so after this, um we have an interrogation of of Ryan. At this point, there's been a lot of tension with him as well because he's just been tied up kind of in the corner and just like being very vague and just giving little glares and gowls. Um, so under interrogation, he reveals that the government had sent him on a mission to capture a live werewolf. So that's why he was there. Because at this point, he's not revealing why the special forces were there, what they were doing. Um, and this was so that it could be studied and exploited as like a military weapon. At least that's what we assume. Um, he pretty much says that Cooper's squad was expendable and he was given permission to use them as bait. He does this so nonchalantly, like he, he could give less of a fuck. Yeah. Um, and fair play, Wells and Cooper are really upset by this, so they attempt to kill him, but he transforms into a werewolf. This is we see earlier as well. Like I was thinking that at this point, he's had his cut and he's not been complaining about it. And then you see it like healed up and stuff. And then we get this this scene where he transforms. So, I mean, I was kind of expecting it, but also not at the same time. Lindsay, what did you think of this scene and just Ryan just being an evil bastard? Yeah, like it just kind of goes to show that he really has no moral compass whatsoever. Like we've seen this in films like a million times, like Alien, for example, when they're trying to, aliens rather, and they're like, oh, let's bring back the alien, even though we know it's a really bad thing. Yeah. And in here it's like, let's bring back the werewolf, even though it will cause harm and death to people. And Ryan just doesn't care because he's like, I'm in the SAS, I get this fat paycheck, I just do what I'm told, I don't care about anything or anybody. So he's quite happy to do it. Um, I like this reveal that like being attacked by the werewolf makes you into a werewolf and it just like adds another layer to like what Cooper and Wells like kind of have to defeat against this guy because it's it is multi-layered like he's held back so much information this whole time he's sat there being cryptic he's been winding people up and now he's a werewolf so it just like adds this other layer that like extra bad guy type thing that they need to defeat it's also like you know we see a lot of werewolf transformations or for the likes of ginger snaps it's like quite gradual and there's a lot of like telltale signs with like the hair and the anger issues and the nails and we see that as well like the quarry that came out they do kind of a similar thing loads of werewolf movies do this but you don't really get that in dog soldiers they get like they heal up and they you know feel more like powerful and stuff and you know they're um all healed up but like that's something that you could hide there's not really any other I don't know if that was on purpose, Janine, but when, when it comes to the reveal, you're kind of less prepared for it because it's not been a like, well, they're definitely going to change in like 10 minutes or whatever, you know. 
So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think, um, again, it, if you know your law, you know what's coming. Um, and you're kind of played with that but yeah it wasn't in your face like you say like he wasn't kind of hiding his hand because it had grown all furry or anything like that but it, it was more yeah it's kind of like right okay here we go we're gonna have a reveal now um but what did you think of the actual reveal I really I did really like it um I think considering budgets as well like we said it still had a budget but you know this film is relatively low budget um I like that you don't see everything as well. I think sometimes, especially when you are sh struggling with budgets, kind of leaving things to the imagination works better. And then, you know, we get a much longer kind of transformation later with the sergeant as well, which I I really liked, you know, seeing him like withering in pain on the floor and stuff like that. So I haven't seen a transformation like that before, but no, I liked it. Lindsay, did you like it? Yeah, absolutely. Like like I said before, the special effects in this are amazing for like such a low budget film. And uh, yeah, like the transformation doesn't disappoint. So after this is when, I mean, shit's already hit the fan. This is when we're coming to our really big reveal. Um, so the soldiers try to blow up the barn where Megan tells them that the werewolves must be hiding. She's kind of let slip once or twice little bits where I think Ryan picked up on it where she said she was you know trying to find them and he says oh I thought you were just bumped into them there was these one or two little tidbits but I hadn't picked it up maybe it's because of my ADHD brain and I don't pick things up that much in films but I, you know on a second third watch I might have um, picked up a bit more but Megan tells them that the werewolves are hiding they must be hiding the petrol gas canisters matches and the Land Rover so once the barn structure has been destroyed she reveals that not only were there no werewolves in the barn, but she is a werewolf. She reveals that she unlocked the back door to the house, allowing the other werewolves to get inside. And before she fully transforms, um, Wells shoots her in the head. And we got a really nice bit before this as well, where her like eyes are glowy and her teeth are coming out. I wasn't expecting this. And you are kind of in that juxtaposition where you can kind of understand where she's coming from a bit because she does feel trapped, but you're also like you shouldn't have this is all your fault really essentially um yep. <laughs> I know you said a little bit already there but Jeannie how do you feel about this in terms of you can kind of understand where she's coming from a little bit but still not justifiable right no no I really struggle with it because for me as well um even if she had originally saved them with the idea of escaping she's still a bloody werewolf so no matter where she'd taken them where they'd ended up whether they'd got to Fort William or whatnot she was still going to change you, you know the, 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 obviously she's been able to hold it into a certain point but as far as I'm aware with werewolves they, they, they have to change unless they've done something so that was my only thing with you know once we get to the reveal and we find out that she was a werewolf all along it was like anything that up to that point I might have been able to say, all oh, right, then she she was doing this or she was doing that. That's it now. I, I don't feel anything for her apart from complete and utter contempt because of what she's done. Um, and she had, there was no reason for her to lead them there. And she killed our lads. And I hate her for that. <laughs> Basically. We don't want her killing our lads. So no, when, when she got 
sure I, I didn't feel sympathy but it was it, I did expect that reveal um Lindsay I don't know if you were the same if you remember from your first oh from your first watch yeah like I was really surprised um I like I wasn't expecting it at all because I'm like oh she's a zoologist but now it's like she's she's not even a zoologist probably either she's just a werewolf but I thought it was very like clever because she has this perceived knowledge over everybody of course they're gonna listen to her so she was like very clever to kind of use that to her advantage but yeah I was shooketh as you say so after this well as mentioned before she fully transforms we get that kind of bit where we can see her eyes and her teeth and Wells shoots her in the head um, him and Cooper run upstairs and Spoons has the fight in the kitchen with the werewolves and this is the bit where we think he's going to escape but he doesn't but he has the best line ever because he's like well I hope you get the shits when you, when you eat me he goes in a blaze of glory as he should um, and after this Wells and Cooper shoot through the floor upstairs to elude the werewolves and they drop into the kitchen where they find Spoons um, we see at this point that Wells is beginning to change and he orders Cooper to take shelter in the cellar and gives him a roll of photographic film. Because we've seen earlier as well, if they flash the camera, that makes the wolves go kind of back. And we've seen that, I think, when they were breaking in the window earlier and it was like flash after flash to keep them at bay, which is a little bit of lore. Um, this is a really emotional scene as well. Like, I actually felt quite teary-eyed because, you know, the sergeant who I wasn't like... I didn't find the most likable before up until this point and then you're like you know you're a goner anyway but like and Cooper's obviously got this really good relationship with the soldiers as well like you mentioned earlier that you know fuck the special forces I'd rather be with the underdogs any day um and it's a really sad scene um when he has to you know hunker down under the floorboards whilst um Wells goes through his transformation. Janine, do you find this? I can imagine probably even more emotional because, like, you know the backstory of everything. You're just like it tugs at your heartstrings, probably. I have found that on a couple of occasions, I haven't been able to watch the scene. I've had to like, you know, skip past it because it always brought a lump to my throat. Anyway, uh, you know, before, years before I spoke to any of the guys, but now it's just like it's horrendous watching it. Um, and what Neil did, um, partly out of necessity, but also it works really well with the film, is because it was all shot chronologically and because they had almost zero money. As soon as a um, actor was killed off, as soon as their um, character was killed off, the actor was flown home. So by the time this was shot at the end, there was literally only uh, Kevin, Sean were left on the set. Everybody else had gone. And um, what Neil did is he, he and Sam, the um, director of photography, like, they were like stood in different corners and they basically let uh, um, Sean and Kev just play, just do whatever they needed to. And a lot of that raw emotion that is in that final scene was real because Kev knew he was going to be the last man standing because as soon as they filmed that bit, Sean got sent home as well. And the bits that are in the cellar at the end, that was Kev was literally left on his own with, you know, just the crew and nobody else. So the emotion is real because the actors had bonded so much over those six weeks that they were there. They felt like they were missing family members. So it's it's an amazing scene. And I think that not only the emotion on Sean's face when he kind of like blows himself up, but as you said, it's that the look on Kev's face when he's down in the cellar and he's got his hands over his ears because he hears the explosion and he knows what's just happened. 
it's just gutting it really is it's it is such a raw emotion and the fact that the, I mean it goes to show like when you let actors play like you can really get the best out of them I know this is a totally different tangent and not horror but it's like with Euphoria like the late season of Euphoria was very emotional very heavy scenes about drug addiction and rehabilitation and a lot of that was ad-lib and they gave them the room to just feel it in the moment I love that they were the only two left and he was the only one left because it would just add to it and yeah. I think filming a scene like that as well you probably wouldn't want crowds there and especially if you bonded with everyone and they're all your mates now yeah you're probably like I love you guys and I don't want to laugh and have fun right now because I'm trying to film this really sad scene exactly yeah Lindsay did you cry <laughs> I didn't cry but it is such a good scene like at the start of the film um Wells you just think he's maybe just like a bit of an arsehole he's a bit hard on the troops and stuff but throughout the film he just talks about it, the the love of the job like he has a wife and family at home but he loves it the army so much he loves being on the ground with the underdogs like you say and then seeing him sacrifice himself like this it is it is really emotional because he's like been true to his word like the whole time really like as much as he comes across as really quite like brutish it's all like for the love of the job and for the love of the troops and that like that's why he does it yeah you can tell how much he cares about his comrades and you know he has that scene as well it's really powerful at the start where is at the start near near the start where they're like sharing stories and he mentions about his his friend and the PTSD yeah. he has from that. Um, you know, he got caught caught in a bomb and stuff like that. So, you know, he's he's suffered loss before. Mm-hmm. And it is your family, because you know, you you don't have anyone else there. You're literally relying on each other to keep each other alive. So that bond you have, I don't think it'd be like anything else. Um, but after this. We get our final scene. So, so there's the sunrise, as I mentioned. Um, Wells has sacrificed himself. He's cut a gas line so it blows up the house, so it kills him and the rest of the werewolves. Cooper um, attempts to leave, but werewolf Ryan confronts him. He has a brutal fight with him and stabs Ryan in the chest with the silver letter opener from the start of the film. So it's a nice little take back to the first scene. Um, and it gives him enough time to allow Cooper to shoot him in the head. And then Cooper... And Megan's border collie Sam. I am so glad this dog survived. Like, <laughs> I had so much anxiety for this little border collie this entire film. <laughs> um, they emerge from the cellar, and Cooper's story with his photographs are shown and reported on tabloids, but with the title "Werewolves Ate My Platoon" under the results of the England versus Germany football match. Which actually, considering it's like two thousand and two, I think like. It reminds me of tabloid culture in the UK at that time. Like, I don't, you know, Lindsay, if you remember reading, like, oh, what was it? News of the World. It's like, that's something that they would do. They would take a tragedy and make a, a line out of something like that, wouldn't they? But oh, that is- yeah, absolutely. They would just take the piss because it's such an unbelievable story. And even though Cooper has proof, they're, they're just going to take the piss out of him. That never happens. Like, just gaslight him into the kid. It never, ever happens gaslighting in its finest format well that's 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 the that's the ending um of our of our film um before we get like into our thoughts on the the ending and all those bits and pieces um we're going to go into the 
uh, box office and budget because we've mentioned mentioned it a couple times. So this film had a two point three million dollar budget and it only made five million, which I think's a real shame. Um, like I feel like this is quite an underrated film. But as you mentioned, and you mentioned Janine, it's is it getting like a remaster or there's something happening in August? Yes, um, Second Sight are putting out the uh, digitally remastered 4K DVD. Um, there's a normal one and then a special edition with all like the postcards and whistles and things. Um, so yeah, finally we'll be able to see it in all its beautiful glory. Um, and I think that part of the reason why it got such a small um, amount of money back relatively was because it didn't have a theatrical release in the US. It went straight onto the sci-fi channel over there. That's where it was distributed. So they missed out on, you know, on all of the, the theatre um, intake that they would have got if it had been picked up over there. So it was a bit of a shame. It's a real shame because it's such a unique premise as well. I was thinking as well, like when I seen the, like the box office intake, I was really surprised because... I can't think of a person who's like never heard of this film. Like I feel like a lot of people know Dog Soldiers, know and love Dog Soldiers. So I was like, how has it not got a release? But then what Janine said there actually makes sense. If it was on the sci-fi channel in the US, it must have got picked up that way. And this I would say this is definitely like a bit of a cult classic. Yeah. I mean, fingers crossed, because it has had so much um love post um 2002 that like there will be a fair few amount of cinemas i'm selfishly hoping the indie cinema near mine does a, a screening of it as well so we can hope and if anyone should see on a big screen it's you janine so hopefully there's a cinema near you that has a has a screening of it i know it'd be amazing uh, but we will get into ratings so IMBD gave dog soldiers a 6.8 out of 10 the rotten tomatoes critics gave it 80 percent the audience gave it 79%. But as we always say on Ghoul Friends, we don't give a shit what the critics say. We only care about our own opinions. Um, <laughs> so Janine, as you're our guest, I have to start off with you. But I think somehow you are going to rate it highly. What are you going <laughs> to give Dog Soldiers out of 10? 11. <laughs> 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 for me, it is, it is my favourite film, not just my favourite horror film, my favourite film it, it's perfection so you know I, I'm just happy to find other people that love it as much as I do and for people to be discovering it all the time as well definitely and what about you Lindsay what are you going to give it out of 10 uh, I'm going to give Dog Soldiers an 8 out of 10 uh, like you're saying at the start as much as this is not filmed in Scotland it is showcasing Scotland talking about Scotland and we're very rarely spoke about mentioned our voices are very rarely seen in such um like in cinema in general so it was really good to see Kev McKidd who's such an amazing actor has like had an amazing career to be on the screen and uh yeah this is such a unique premise of a film it's so much fun like it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster and uh yeah like it definitely deserves that cult classic status because it like it's a really good film yeah definitely 
I'm going to be going in the middle between you both and giving half points, which I know Lindsay loves. I'm going to give Dog Soldiers an eight and a half out of ten. I really, really do like this film. It's so nice, as you said, to, as we've already mentioned, see Scotland on the screen, because not even just cinema and TV as well. I feel like it's really rare and it's such a shame because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in the north of Scotland near me is like the Cam Gorms and we have so much folklore and legends and tales and it's like you especially for horror that is like the perfect location to pull inspiration from so I feel it's like a real gem like a hidden gem to find a film that's Scottish and it feels even though it's from the Luxembourg it feels quite genuine and like the acting is just every single character which I think is quite rare to find in horror like on an ensemble cast you care about everyone and you know everyone everyone's name and you can you know feel for them when they die um, I feel like it's a really unique film and even though people know it I at least in my circle I feel like there's a lot of people that still haven't watched it so if you've not watched it get it watched but we are going to move on to the next movie for the Scottish spooky sleepover get the bagpipes out and pass it on to Lindsay okay so our second film is The Wicker Man Welcome, fool. I believe in the life eternal, as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. I am here to investigate the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. If she existed, we would know. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. Sergeant, if I were you, I would go back to the mainland. You wouldn't be around here on lady. Hail the Queen of the Bay! Pagan! Where is Rowan Morrison? Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. So the IMDb plot is as follows. A Puritan police sergeant arrives in a Scottish island village in search of a missing girl who the pagan locals claim never existed. This film came out in 1973, stars Edward Woodward, Christopher Lee and Diane Salento. This was directed by Robin Hardy. This was one of three films he ever directed and one of the other ones is a sequel to The Worker Man that I don't think a lot of people know about called The Worker Tree and he also directed The Fantasist. And this was written by Anthony Schaefer and based on the novel Ritual by David Pinner. So I picked this film because it's actually mostly filmed in the area that I grew up in in Scotland. Um, so this is entirely filmed in Scotland. The overhead shots at the start of the film are the Isle of Skye. Um, the place where Lord Summer Isle lives is Killeen Castle at um, in Ayrshire. Um, there's some scenes that are filmed in Pitlochry, 
And the rest of the film is filmed in Dumfries and Galloway. It's filmed in Kukubri, Stranraer, Newton Stewart, Creighton, all over the place. Um, and we, for the time, like, use this connection to the Wickerman to host a Wickerman festival. Uh, so the Wickerman festival was held in Dundrennan, just outside Kukubri, from 2001 to 2015. And literally, like, the highlight of the the weekend was the burning of the wicker man at midnight like all the headliners would finish at like half 11 so that everyone could get out to the wicker man and watch it and then watch all the fireworks so like as soon as we were doing something scotland related i absolutely had to pick this film because it's home <laughs> um so janine do you remember the first time you watched this film i imagine it would have been because um my love of horror comes from my parents so I grew up watching horror um uh, I imagine um this would have been on probably on the tv or maybe my dad would have rented it on VHS back in the 80s probably um but the last I, I've watched it at least two or three times as an adult but not recently um it's I think it's a film that if you have any interest in horror and if you have any interest in either writing or filmmaking or anything like that it's a classic it really is something that you have to have in your catalogue of things that you've seen and to be able to refer to and it is just almost like everyday parlance as well you know like if you see something oh I hope it's not like in the Wicker Man people will you know you reference things like that and people know what you're talking about um, but I haven't seen it for a while. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen the sequel. No, I've not seen it. I only kind of found out about it when I was like making notes for this. Um, Christopher Lee is meant to be in The Wicker Tree. Um, but other than that, I'm not sure like how they're connected at all. Um, but it's interesting. I'm going to have to look it out now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lucy, what are your kind of interactions with this film being? Well, you're going to be very surprised because I feel like I need to take my Scottish card away. This I, I watched it for the first time for the podcast. Never seen it before. To be fair, right, I watched this for the first time when I was like 18. It was on ITV2. Again, they used to come through for the horror films. I watched The Shining for the first time on ITV2 as well. And um, I hated it. I, I didn't get it at all. I did not understand it. But then I revisited it, like, maybe, like, 10 years later and, like, totally fell in love with it. I just maybe didn't have the maturity to understand, like, the nuances of the film because there's, like, little to no violence in it. It's very much, like, giving you an uneasy feeling. Like, you don't know what's going on all the time. You're just kind of wondering when the bad thing's going to happen. Um until it eventually does and I, my 18 year old brain probably just wasn't mature enough for that then so I like I'm glad I revisited it later on because I do love it now um like it's a total folk horror classic and um yeah I get it now I get why people yeah. talk about this film it's interesting you mentioned that because the first time I watched it I was like what in the fuck is this it felt like it felt like an edibles trip it was like um, it is weird, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Um, and I didn't know how I felt about it because you would 
from what we talk about you think this is my kind of film because I love slow burns like artsy stuff like I love Midsummer, so I thought it would be right up my alley but it took me probably a second or third watch to really get into it and get into like the nuances and then when I started reading up people's thoughts on it because there's so much to talk about on this film when it comes to like Christianity and paganism but also the representation of Scotland like I, like seeing those shots of the Isle of Skye at the start actually kind of tugged at my heartstrings a bit when I saw that the music in it is stunning but I feel like anyone that does watch it they should at least watch it twice because I think you need to kind of absorb it first and then actually kind of dig into it after to see it for for what it is yeah I agree it's like it's not that it's a lot it's just like I don't think I understood what was going on the first time and by the time the end came around like I was so I was laughing I was like why is he singing I was like I was so (laughs) confused (laughs) but then like on a second or third watch that's probably actually one of the few times in this film I'm actually like feel sorry for Sergeant Howie because it is really emotional the way they're skipping ahead but the way he just feels completely helpless and all he can do is sing to God and just kind of hope that he lives a life eternal like he believes and it is actually really emotional but the first time I watched that like that went completely over my head I'd didn't really know anything about religion or anything whereas now I'm a lot more educated um, and I understand now (sighs) but anyway let's get into the plot so as I said our like protagonist in the film is uh, police sergeant Neil Howie Um, one of my down points in this film is that I don't like Neil Howie (laughs) like I'm on the, the islander side for most of the film which you're not supposed to be but he's so like preachy about his religion it really winds me up um I'm very just like you know, do what you want, like, I, I don't really care, and the way he's like, oh, what do you not know about Jesus Christ? It's like, they do, and they've decided that they don't like it, and they're doing something else, and I don't understand what's wrong with that. Yeah, I saw um a couple of papers, like, on the representation of, like, stubborn faith and, like, blind faith, and how, how he is the representation of that, and I'm the same, I, I guess we both sided with the wrong people but I kind of got where the islanders were coming from and I was like you know what like fair play because he's just constantly judging them he loves a whinge and a moan if he's not moaning about his dinner from a can he's moaning about you know bloody you're all imbeciles and you're bloody all insane why didn't you try and leave beforehand then because there's nothing that's why I don't get because obviously a lot of the stuff they do is kind of like on a first glance like really fucked up and if I saw that I mean when the kids were singing around the pole I'd been like nope I'm going (laughs) get my flight (laughs) Um, and he doesn't so I'm just like it's your own fucking fault you could have left earlier but you didn't because you're a nosy cow (laughs) exactly so Police Sergeant Neil Howey arrives by seaplane so this is the thing I don't even got to the film yet He's like, oh, I'm heavy Christian, I'm hardcore Christian, I'm a police, and I do the preaching, and I can fly a plane. It's like, well, you're obviously not that great, because you're not even married yet, you're a big fat virgin, and you're going to get burned alive later. So you're not that bloody great, are you? And he sits, walks around preaching to everybody, like, shut up. <laughs> hype himself up like the big I am. You're nothing, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> you feel passionate, babes. My God. I really don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Police Sergeant Neil Harry journeys to the Hebridean Islands of Summer Isle via seaplane to investigate the disappearance of a young girl called Rowan Morrison. So he's been sent this letter and well, I don't know why it's him specifically that ends up going there because there seems to be some kind of divine plan that he needed to be the one to come. But he's he goes out to investigate this disappearance and he starts like interviewing everybody and they're all just like, we don't know who she is, which is so bizarre because like I'm from a village. Everybody knows everybody. I imagine somewhere else very similar. Imagine anybody listening who's from an island will know that it's very similar. So the fact that all these people are just like, don't know who you're talking about, never seen this girl before in my life, is very strange. Um, like, what did you what did you think at this point in the film? Like, what kind of direction did you think it was going to go in? I had absolutely no idea. The first like sort of couple of times I can remember watching it, being like, are, are they purposely hiding it? Does, does she not really exist? You know, is it going to go down a supernatural route in some... I had no idea where it was going. But you immediately, like you say, know that something's off because um, I, obviously I didn't grow up in Scotland, but I grew up in Somerset, again, in a very quite small town where everybody knows everybody else and you know what your neighbours are doing and you know the old people down the road and all of that kind of stuff. So in somewhere like this, not to know, who, you know, especially if it's a child and a child that's gone missing, no, something's definitely up here. Yeah, it's just that underlying tension and also having grown up in a small town it's like you can sneeze and the whole town knows about it and <laughs> in an island like that as well everyone would know each other's business but it's just this like blank face of like no the thing that um freaked me out was like the the primary school teacher if I assume it's primary school kids and there's clearly the empty desk and she's like nope don't know who that is kids pass yes. the photograph and like no don't know who it is and then he opens the register and it's like, there's her name. Like, no, no, she doesn't exist. Like, she just doesn't, and it's just like, how far would you push it? It's like, you know, they're just, there's no stopping them. So like over the course of his investigation on the island, like Harry, as we said, really puts forth his opinions about where like does not agree with this paganesque religion at all um at one point like we're saying the boys are dancing around the, uh, the maypole and uh the teacher asks the girls like what does the maypole represent and they're like the penis and they're talking about it very matter of fact because they seem to be like very open sexually on the island um the like the pub owner's daughter seems to be inviting people in we're never really told what kind of ceremonial purpose that serves but everybody downstairs seems to be singing so it must be something to do with their religion at one point there's like a woman crying naked over a grave which I don't know why like got like got to me a little bit I was just like you know what that's your husband and you want to be naked by the grave, go ahead, hon, because, you know, you can't do that in real life anymore. <laughs> so I support it. You do, you head. <laughs> <laughs> but also, 
really cut made me laugh was um later on when he's like barging into everyone's house no care for privacy and there's the puppets that are sat like they're shagging on the bed and he's just like oh more sex just fuck off it's quite funny <laughs> it's just the way he's like walking around because the woman at the school as well actually she's like you need a search warrant and he's like no I don't I'm, like, I'm sitting there like yeah you do and he just like barges in like he, he broke the law there he broke the law I know they're all like you need Lord Summer Ellis permission I don't think he does but if he had a search warrant like he could have done whatever he wanted but he doesn't have one and he just thinks he's a big guy I am and I don't like him GDPR I don't know her Sorry. <laughs> I know <laughs> so when um questioning the the teacher at the school she kind of takes them aside and it's like look we believe in reincarnation so as much as when the person does not exist like we believe that she is part of the grass and the trees and the air and the sea and the animals and the fruit like Rowan's all around us but at the same time she's not and he's like all right so what else? <laughs> <laughs> so she directs him to a grave which is meant to be ruins and again he's like disgusted that there's no like gravestone he builds a, a christian cross out of like broken pieces of wood which just seems a bit much um but she directs him to his grave to her grave sorry um which he'll later exhume but we'll get into that later so this whole time, everybody on the island has been like, no, we can't do that. Like, we don't have Lord Summerell's permission. And he's just like, who is Lord Summerell? So he visits the island's leader, Lord Summerell, at his home, uh, Killeen Castle. It's not really Killeen Castle in the film, but it is in real life if you ever wanted to go and visit it on a little horror holiday. Um, so Lord Summerell explains that his grandfather came to the island um, to start a new way of life and he developed strains of fruit trees that prospered in Scotland's climate where they're actually not supposed to. It's a verity and they believe that it is like praying to these old pagan gods that bring such prosperity specifically to this island um, and over the course of time more and more people have bought into it and now it's just a pagan island um, it kind of, the way that they talk about like how they became pagan I was kind of like I get it like some parts of Christianity can be like really heavy and oh you're a bad person you're a bad person whereas in this life, everybody seems really happy. They seem to like give in to a lot of their desires and they have like a very like bountiful life. Um Lucy, would you have would you have signed up to Lord Summer Isles religion? Um, well, if it's between that and hardcore Christian Howie, I think I'm going with the pagans, <laughs> but um, you know, paganism's always interested me. I'm I'm not religious, but I'm very much of the belief of everyone's entitled to their beliefs, but, you know, don't throw your belief in somebody else's face because it's, you know, our own rights, our own body, we're allowed to think what, what we think. Uh, but it's really interesting because, you know, Howie is 
so judgmental of their ways and their practices, but the islanders, I mean, yes, they do eventually commit murder, but, um, you know, they're very open. They're, they're not judgmental of him. They're not bashing him for having a go at them, of saying, you know, he thinks they're wrong. They don't really engage in any kind of conflict. Um, it just seems like a very kind of happy community. And I think it just, especially for the 70s as well, and if you think about the UK at the time as well, which is, pre- I mean, predominantly quite Christian, I, I would say, especially at that time. I mean, it's, it's quite a bold film in the way that it shows, you know, how some people are very much not accepting of others and, you know, showing paganism where some people might think like it's very dark and twisted. And even though it shows those sides, it also shows like the, hu- the humanity in it as well and of communities like this. So, yeah, it's got like a lot of, subtext to it I saw somebody describe this film as like the Citizen Kane of horror movies and I would definitely agree with that um there's like a lot that you can discuss here that like still applies to 2022 when we speak about religion today to be honest so yeah well like I mean we've all been saying it like throughout but the way that how he like shoves his religion down people's throats like in this scene specifically he comes to Lord Summer Isle to be like can I assume Rowan Morrison's grave and he's like of course because you need to do an investigation and that's fine and then he berates like how he berates Lord Summerdale for his religion and like the stuff that his grandfather did to bring paganism to the island and then he's like asked again can I exhume this grave and Lord Summerdale's like I told you you could ages ago and then he started rambling and it's just like because his hatred of anything different from him is like more important than the investigation and like I was just like shouting at my tv I'm like he already fucking told you <laughs> what do you think Janine yeah um as you said there, there is very much that subtext of intolerance there that's what it, it it could be it could be literally anything you know this this sergeant believes that whatever he believes in is what's right and he will not accept anything else at all and um again i grew up quite close to glastonbury so kind of like paganism uh, you know wiccans and druids and all of that kind of things like sort of steeped within the history around there and for people that i've met in my life who actually are practicing pagans and whatnot they're the nicest most docile kind generous people because that's kind of what their belief is that you know um that you should treat other people how you expect to be treated you give back to the land when you take from it and all of that kind of stuff so literally everything that he's like spouting at them about all of this like you know the the heathens and all of this sort of stuff they're the people aside from the murder which we can't really can you know condone <laughs> Every, everything else is like you know they're doing things their way they're just getting on with it they didn't want him coming over and sticking his bloody nose in and telling them what was going on and they've done everything apart from deny she exists that they've done everything else to kind of like help him along the way and that kind of stuff so yeah I totally agree that he is and I think it was um I, I think it was done on purpose to make him such a like a knob basically because he is <laughs> you're not supposed to side with him <laughs> So after getting permission from Lord Summerisle, Harry um, 
exhumes the grave, digs out the coffin, opens it up, and there's a, a dead head in it. <laughs> it's not funny, but because I hate Harry so much, the frustration in his face just makes me laugh. Um, so he finds these harvest photos uh, that shows Rowan standing in the midst of empty boxes that shows that the last year's harvest failed. And he thinks that they may have or going to sacrifice Rowan to try and stop the next year's crop from failing. It's almost right. It's almost right. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> um, so he starts to try and like find Rowan to see if he is along on the right lines. Um, and he decides I'm gonna go back to the mainland and try and like get some help because I can't do this on my own. And this is where it kind of for me, I'm like, did they pick him on purpose? Because obviously there's something up with the seaplane and he can't leave. Uh, and we later learned that he fits a lot of their criteria for like the perfect sacrifice. So it does make me wonder, like, was this by design or accident? Um, you know, Lucy and I both love Midsummer, and obviously you can see the influences from here. And there's a bit of that as well. Like, was it an accident that all these people are brought together and the things that happened to them happened? Or was it on purpose? Was it some mm. grand design either by like the cult or by like the gods that they believe in so i find that interesting i really do love that scene when he gets left on the play uh, in the plane in in the water and there's the, the old guy in the boat and he's just like bye you bastard and he's got the little <laughs> microphone like help me come back <laughs> i need your help with this megaphone I left him there just been like bye babes <laughs> Back. so funny so um so yeah he now realizes that he's stuck on this island and he's gonna have to try and figure it out for himself so um it's also the may day festival while all this is happening and everybody's kind of like just keep your nose out like we're just gonna do our thing that's what we do every year we're gonna sing and dance and be merry and just you keep out of it because they, they say they don't really like outsiders being around on their May Day festival. He's like, I'm not having that. So he subdues the the pub landlord and steals his costume so that he can go there in disguise. And he is dressed up like Punch the Fool, um, which unbeknownst to PC Harry is very appropriate for his role that he will play in the May Day Festival. So he follows the group to the beach. They're following this um, path that they follow every year that's like very important to their religion. I think they call it sacred ground. Uh, they walk through the fields, they walk through the beach, and then eventually they find Rowan at the top of this cliff. So what did you think when you saw, this is the first time we see Rowan alive. Um, what, do, like, what do you think when we see Rowan? I was pretty shooketh, but one scene before that that I quite liked was when they're around the, the stones and they're doing the, they've got the swords and they're doing the chop thing and they're all going under and they're going chop, chop. And like, obviously your first thought is thinking, okay, they say it's a game of chance. 
somebody's going to get beheaded and then they do chop but it's just the top of the because they're all wearing like I have to say that's where I was like this is an edibles trip because they've got these like furry realness like masks on there's this dinosaur lock monster thing um it was quite interesting because you think like they've beheaded someone and it's a it's a kid or it's a teenage girl that's underneath it and it's not and it's a bit of fun so like that's kind of a think back to the audience of like we immediately thought that they were gonna kill each other what does that say about me making that assumption as well um I really like that scene that's like my favorite scene in this because it's so high intense like you're just waiting to see who's gonna literally at the chop we f- we see Rowan at the top of the these stones and Harry just like completely like breaks character he's like running up he's like I'm gonna save you and she's like all tied up and it's very much like playing into the axe and they run through these caves into and like another bit of greenery and Lord Summer Isle her mum um I can't quite remember who else is standing there but there's a few different people standing there and all the pieces kind of come together and like for the audience as well. And it's like, oh, this was a setup. Uh, Lord Summerisle like thanks Rowan for like playing her part so well. And then she runs off to her mum. Like what did we, what did we think of the reveal? I think it's a good reveal. Um, I I think it's a problem that, we have as horror fans that well certainly as me as a writer as well is that whenever I watch things um, and I spoil them for myself I'm constantly thinking what would I do what do I think is going to happen now whereas I, I find that I can't just sit and watch a film and enjoy it now I'm constantly second guessing so it wasn't the most kind of like oh my god I had no idea it was going to happen but it is good um, I did it and, and he definitely had no idea that he was being set up. He was completely like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is this is incredible. Um, uh, yeah, so it was good in that respect, definitely. What do you think? Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't expect it at all. And I think like when I first watched it, I was a bit like, eh, but on a second watch, as you're saying, you're having that kind of thought is is he like, you know, it all falls into place because he's the perfect victim. And also, he is given the chance not to be there. He has decided of his own fate to be there and meddle in when he was told not to. So it is kind of like a, well, it's your own fault, mate, and you are literally the fool. Um, And I think I needed to watch it like another time or another like second time, third time to really kind of get that. Um, But I didn't, I didn't expect it like I knew something was going to happen but yeah it was it was it was a nice twist so Lord Summerisle reveals that Harry is the intended sacrifice because he fits their gods for requirements so like Lucy said he came to the island of his own free will he has the power of a king and um, he has this through representing the law he is a virgin, um, like he mentions earlier in the film, that he is engaged to be married and he is not engaged in any form of intercourse um, as per his beliefs. And uh, the last requirement is him being a fool. So I guess the way he's been hoodwinked by the whole island, the fact that he's dressed like Punch, who is a fool as well, all of these things 
um, <clears throat> like match up quite nicely. Howie is trying to warn the Islanders that the crops aren't failing because they don't have like a good enough sacrifice. They usually sacrifice animals, but they feel like they need to take it that one step further for the first time in the island's history. Um, but because that the climate is not suitable for the types of crops that they're growing. So he's really trying to like use logic and kind of be like, like you can't do this because killing me will not work. And we see him like having this art like shouting at somewhere else being like if you do this and this doesn't work you will be next and somewhere else saying like they will never kill me and it's like this is the one point of the film where I am sympathizing with Howie because he knows he's completely helpless in this point he's he's trying to like get on their side and try and use logic it's not working because he should know that like logic doesn't really work against belief a lot of the time like nobody can logic him out of his belief so how does he think he can do it to these people uh-huh. and the helplessness of his cries like it really like gets me right in the feels um like what what do we think of these scenes leading up to our first our one and only shot of the wicker man yeah i, de- I definitely agree like you said i don't i think purpose he's not made to be the kind of person that you um, are rooting for because he is such an ass. but at the, you know when he finally realizes what is about to happen and he, he he's begging for his life basically he is absolutely pleading please don't do this kind of thing and you do feel for him in that moment he is He's an idiot. He's unlikable. But he, and apart from you know, sort of being preachy and whatnot, he hasn't actually done anything wrong, and he's going to pay for it. So yeah, you you do feel for him in that moment, definitely. See, I don't know if I'm just a savage, but I was just thinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> just to no sympathy. <laughs> I, mean, I just. Yeah, I mean, you, you get. I mean, essentially, he hasn't done anything wrong, but also, you had so many chances to get out of this situation. He so did, like, yeah. Nah. Burn, <laughs> burn, baby, burn. <laughs> Love it. So he is forced inside this giant wicker man that's also full of other like farm creatures. And it is set on fire um, while the the, the islanders, the people of Summer Isle, sing a folk song. Um, Howie recites Psalm 23 and prays to God before just screaming and like as he burns to death. And like the very ending of the film is the worker man's head like collapsing in on itself while you know the worker man burns, and that's the end of the film. Um I really, I really like this film. Um, I think, as like a lot of good films, like well-written films, well-created films are, like it still has a lot to say about life in 2022. Like we've seen in America, people because of their specific religion trying to enforce things on a group of, you know, six people are trying to enforce something on 350 million people. It doesn't seem very fair. 
um well it's not fair at all um and it's all based on religion so these these issues that are like brought forth in this film are still very true today and this this film's what nearly 50 years old which is crazy we still have to have those kind of conversations but we do it's just it's insanity when you think about you think 50 years on as Janine said earlier it's like intolerance and just it rather than having tolerance as you said it's six people making a decision for the rest of the world and then in the UK as well we've had you know the Human Rights Act abolished for a Bill of Rights, which is massively affecting a lot of people, um, marginalised communities, especially disabled people and people with chronic illnesses since COVID. And I mean, even today, I, I've been quite sucked into all the people that are leaving Parliament right now. The whole world is just a little bit of a trash fire. And it's just, it's insane that something from 50 years ago, that message is kind of still valid today. Absolutely. It's scary that it's still so relevant today, really. You know, with, with everything else that has progressed so far with technology and all of that kind of stuff, the fact that these beliefs are still what's dictating so much is, is scary. That's the real horror. <laughs> so um, before we get into box office and stuff I just wanted to get into a little bit of trivia so as I said like this was filmed all over Scotland but none of our leads are Scottish <laughs> so like this is where it falls down and um, so Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward are both English and um, Edward Woodward's accent is quite good like there are a few moments where it like drops a bit the Scottish accent is really hard like not going to pretend it isn't because it is hard to do um but his accent is really good uh diane salento is australian ingrid pitt is polish and Britt eckland is swedish so not <laughs> not a scot in the bunch <laughs> that is absolutely good um Christopher Lee also counts this as like one of his greatest roles he went to great lengths to promote this film he would just end up on like Wisconsin breakfast tv talking about the worker man because he was really had a lot of faith in the project um him and was it Robin Hardy yeah, they so. like bought the rights to the book together so that they could develop it into a film. So this, like Christopher Lee, was all in on this film, and like it shows, like it's a really good film. He does an amazing job. He always does an amazing job, but he does an amazing job in his role. And um, yeah, like what an amazing project that they made together. So anyway. Let's get on to box office and ratings. So, kind of annoyingly, <laughs> I got the budget in pounds, but the box office in dollars. Um, everywhere I looked, it all came out that way. So, it was made for a £500,000 budget, but it only made $76.7,000 at the box office. So really low return there and not entirely sure why well it is a bit of a slow burn film like as much as it's scary there's not really any violence it's not your typical horror really so maybe that's why but I was still quite surprised 
I was trying to find how much 500,000 would be today because obviously that was what 1973 so yeah. it'd be it looks like it's around 3.7 million so it'd have been pretty hefty like converting it now but I also think maybe it didn't do as good as it should have because of the subject matter because yeah. it is I mean anytime you talk about religion in a film you know it it does spout controversy and especially in the 1970s um, yeah that's probably didn't help either Right. So um, IMDb rated this a 7.5 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes critics rated it an 88% and the audience an 82%. And Metacritic rated this an 87%. Um, but let's find out what we think about it. Um, Janine, what would you rate The Wicker Man out of 10? Like I've said, it, it's a classic it's something that um, is still relevant, but also um, subject matters still used, like you've said, with things like Midsummer and whatnot today. Um, I'm going to get slated, but folk horror isn't one of my own favourite subgenres. So I would give it a seven and a half. I think that's a really good score. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say like five or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of ten, yeah. Get out. No. Uh, Lucy, what do you rate the Wicker Man out of ten? Bad for my score now because it's lower than that. <laughs> but it's not bad. Oh, Lindsay, please still love me. But, but I, I do recognise that like this is a film that every film fan should watch, even without horror. I think it's a really important film. Like. I feel like there's a lot of research done into Scottish folk culture and lore and the message still applies today. And it sounds so hypocritical of me because I talk about how much I love slow burns and artsy films, but for some reason this just wasn't it for me, but it is still good. So I'm going to give it a six and a half. I do really like it. It's just maybe I need to watch it like a fourth time or something till maybe it'll grow on me, but um, I didn't adore it but I can appreciate why people adore it and it yeah. deserves the hype that it gets. Like, I can't see that. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. The world would be a boring place if we all loved the same things, Lucy. True. So you don't hate me. Nice. <laughs> no, <laughs> not completely. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to rate this a 9 out of 10. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's just like a timeless classic to me the like messaging still feels quite fresh unfortunately like it really shouldn't but it does um I think so much about this film still holds up and it's nearly 50 years old so um yeah nine out of ten I want to watch it again like tomorrow So that's the end of our spooky sleepover, our Scottish-themed spooky sleepover. I hope you've all enjoyed it. I hope you've all been drinking your iron brew and um, eating your caramel wafers and your Dunnock tea cakes uh, while you've been listening to us whittering away. <laughs> um, next week, it's 80s night. We're going to really jubilar and we're having an 80s night. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Sleepaway Camp 2 and The Evil Dead. I'm almost never sure if I should say The Evil Dead or just Evil Dead. It is The Evil Dead. It is The Evil Dead, okay. The 2013 one is just Evil Dead, okay. <laughs> I got it right the first time. 
as somebody that is a massive, massive fan of Evil Dead, like the Evil Dead franchise, I'm really excited to talk about this. So it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into some 80s horror. Like, it's definitely a really fun decade when it comes to horror films and such variety, so much fun. And uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to getting into these two films. Um, Janine, can you tell our lovely listeners where they can find you online and also where they can uh, read your works online as well? Well, first of all, thank you both very much for having me. Um, the best place to find me is Twitter, um, where I'm Janine Pipe 28. Uh, that's where I tend to hang out the most. Um, and as for whether you want to look up sausages or any of my fiction, um, best just go to my Amazon page. So again, just type in Janine Pipe onto Amazon and that will bring up all of the work that I, I have. And thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us. And also like, we've learned so much about dog soldiers from you as well. And yeah, yeah it's really <laughs> I know if you weren't a fan of the film before like listening to this episode, like you definitely would be after hearing all your insights because they're just so good. Oh, yay. <laughs> Lucy, where can people find you online? find me at lulu underscore pew on all the socials and just want to say that the hero scream fundraiser has finished now thank you so much for everyone that's donated um we as of this week i got my draft off for the second book um so very exciting i'm going to be talking about family trauma and horror and um yeah just find me on hero scream i did my first interview for the tribeca film festival a couple weeks ago for girls night in with the amazing Alison Roberto and Landon LaRue. Incredible, incredible people in the industry. So yeah, you can find me all on the internet that, there. I am at hi, it's Lindsay underscore on all social media. You can find the podcast at Girlfriend Pod on Twitter and Girlfriends underscore podcast on Instagram. Um, we'll be back next week with 80s Night, but until then, stay spooky.